And welcome to the 43rd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson uh, at CK Tricky on the Twitters. And uh, I am joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Uh, you know, we're at episode 43. This is kind of the second episode of 2019. Um, we've got a great guest tonight, Keith Hoodlett. Uh, we actually met uh, Keith in person in Melbourne, Australia, at the end of last year down at AppSec Day. Had a great, great time down there. And um, I think, Ken, we were on his podcast earlier just a couple weeks ago, correct? Yep. Yep. Yes, sir. Last, I think it was last week. Yep. Last week. Yeah. Sweet. Um, and, but other than that, you know, things are rolling along. We've got some plans for the website and other things to kind of, you know, improve our communication with everyone and planning. So people can kind of plan around when we actually post these live or when we host the episodes live. Um, but other than that, I, we've got a couple of topics that we want to jump into right off the bat for AppSec Minute. Um, but first, uh, Ken, I'll let you kind of introduce Keith. I think you've got that all that in front of you. Yeah, well, Keith, uh, Keith's going to jump in here. So uh, when we talk about the news, because we usually do AppSec Minute where, you know, we talk about something educational. Uh, this week is going to be like coffee talk gossip because there's been a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And we all have some hot takes on it, Keith included. So I'm just going to jump right into Keith's background and we'll get into the... Uh, the uh, minute there. So Keith, it, so like Seth said, we met Keith um, at the OWASP Melbourne. We've been getting that down. Uh, it's Melbourne. Um, con- AppSec Day Conference. He did a great talk there. He uh, hosted He was a, uh, hosted a panel. Um, and so a little background about Keith is he uh, currently works for Thermo Fisher. He is the co-host of Application Security Weekly uh, podcast with Paul um, he is the CTO and co-founder of the uh, InfoSec uh, mentor, mentor Project. Um, I think that was Jimmy Vo and you uh, did that? Yep. Yep. That's correct. Awesome. Um, speaker, developer, all-around great guy. And uh, so, Keith, say hi. We're happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, everybody. And um, thanks for having me. Honestly, this is really fun. And, and uh, it's refreshing to be on a really chill, laid back podcast because every week I'm like prepping and sweating and taking notes. And now it's like, oh, yeah, I just kind of show up and talk. This is great. <laughs> yeah, this is the most polite way to say uh, people just shooting their shit together and <laughs> totally unprofessional. However, I, I love it. That's why we do the podcast this format is for that reason. Just, like, make I, it- I will add. It, it may be like the total like laid back shoot the shit, but it's with people I respect and that <laughs> makes it worth it. That goes both ways. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, we do appreciate it. I mean, it's been like for us, it's awesome. Cause we get to, we get to shoot the shit with people we care about. Right. And that like, we kind of look up to in the industry as far as they're doing cool things. They're working at cool companies and they, they give us a lot of background into, you know, security things that we may or may not have necessarily thought of. Um, but, you know, it's just me and Ken in our houses and, you know, we have a good time. So that's, that's, that's what matters for us. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. This is great. I look forward to this and and feel free to dive in with the, the, you know, AppSec minute, because I, especially talking about this before we jumped live, I'm excited. I'm like an opinionated framework, right? Like I have a lot of things to say about a lot of things and this will be fun. <laughs> Yeah, like the hot takes are what we're looking for here. So, <laughs> so 
where should we where should we start? Uh, I, I, let's start with DerbyCon, right? Uh, that was the big news that came out this week. Um, was that uh, they 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 had their big like write up about how this year is going to be the last year. Um, they're not going to do they're not going to run DerbyCon after DerbyCon nine this year. Uh, and there were a couple of different reasons behind it. Um, I, I mean, I, I I think the organizers are getting tired of it, but it sounds like a, it's a lot more of the infosec drama that goes on, right? The you know, there was a couple of incidents this year with the whole Me Too movement and just other things down there that they're just like, look, it, it's not worth their time anymore or it's not worth their, I don't know if they, they would say that like every one of them, but as a, as a collective group, uh, it's, it's become too much hassle. At least that's my takeaway. Did you have a different one? So, um, oh man, where to start? There's so much to say. Um, but, uh, what I would say from, from my standpoint is that um, like from the positive standpoint on, or the positive side of this is that like they didn't sell the conference to somebody who was just going to take that brand and ultimately who knows how that would end up, but likely not as, as good of a, of the way that brand is currently maintained. So that's a positive thing in an otherwise super shitty situation. Um, so kudos to them for that. Like, that's cool. Um, I, I do want to point out, like, I think I think one thing I wanted to mention too is that, like, because I saw a lot of people say, like, oh, you know, like social justice warriors are ruining the conference and all that, and like, uh, I guess the only thing I would say is there, be careful labeling, because like, yeah, there's definitely um, okay, there are people that advocate for social issues that are actually doing that with a positive intention and go about it in constructive ways. Um, I don't know, like if, forget the labels for a second. There are people that do that. Um, I think the actual issue was with, like with any group, any labeled group, there was a subset of somebody doing something, well, a subset of people doing something to the extreme in a very negative light. And that's, what, when, I see, when I hear all those comments about like, oh, you know, social, social justice warriors ruining it, et cetera, et cetera. I just like want to be very clear that from if I hear that from my perspective, it's like, no, be very careful like how you label people because you've got um, it, what you're really talking about is, is some shitheads that did some stuff that was uh, to, for their own gain, right? It wasn't to help anybody. It wasn't to advocate for anything other than their status on Twitter or their follower account, at least from what I've heard and what I've read. So, um, I, I guess that's the only thing I wanted to, to add to that. But, um, and, and I guess if that wasn't clear, like Seth, did you, I mean, did you want to add to the, the bit there? I mean, I'd love to get Keith's take on this as well. Oh, yeah. I, I've got thoughts on this. If you want me to jump in. Yes. Um, jump right in. Frida, Go for uh, it. You know? Okay. So I'm, I'm really torn on, on the situation, right? So first to quote Batman for a moment, um, you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain, right? And at this point, it's a situation where uh, in the last couple of years now, uh, there have been drama related to DerbyCon that definitely toe the line of issues surrounding the Me Too movement uh, for a number of different things. And so it really does end up being a situation where as the organizers, I'm sure that they're experiencing a lot of uh, just kind of emotional work that goes into putting together this conference that they're trying to, to build on behalf of everyone in the community. 
And at the same time, that labor that goes into making sure that everyone feels safe and comfortable is getting to a fever pitch, right? Where there are people that are claiming that they don't feel safe or comfortable for any given reason. Um, whether or not that is valid, it's still something that as organizers, they have to address, right? And, and that's a, a huge burden to carry. Now, um, myself, I, I won't name the individual personally, but I did have to diffuse a situation related to the individual that is suspected as kind of being behind a lot of the emotional labor that was brought on during the conference last year. Uh, I was able to successfully kind of diffuse the situation and move on. But having seen some of the um, posts that were related to the situation, it, it, it's it's tough, right? Because as organizers for that conference, they want to make sure that they're portraying the best light possible for the industry. And at the same time, there are individuals that if they were to take action against those individuals for, for their behavior, could be painted in a very negative light as a result of say, banning them from the conference, for example, right? You're not being inclusive of others in the community. And so I don't know that there really is a good answer for this. I, I really feel for Dave and the crew for the DerbyCon uh, group, because honestly, they, they put together a great conference. My career got started uh, in large part, I would say, maybe not exactly, but in large part as a result of the training that I gave back at DerbyCon 7 for the offensive web hacking class. I've got the poster on my wall that I saved and, and sent home. It's you know one of those styrofoam board posters, but it cost like 170 bucks to send home. And it was totally worth it because for me, like that led to my talking with Paul, which led to me doing the podcast, which led to me um, you know, getting a chance to speak at OWASP Melbourne and, uh, and also, of course, leading to, I think, partly my job that I have now at Thermo Fisher. And so I don't know that there's any good way to resolve the situation. I, I really feel for the conference organizers. And as um, are we allowed to, to swear on this podcast, we have a list. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, it is so, explicit on iTunes. Cool. So to, to quote Jack Daniel for a moment, um, organizers of conferences are shit umbrellas. They are effectively guarding the rest of the conference and the rest of the attendee experience from all the shit that goes on that they have to put up with or that they have to address. And uh, honestly, uh, it's probably one of the most, um, I don't know, humble things that someone can do for the broader community is to organize a conference, to let others learn and be that shit umbrella. And it's unfortunate that in this case, the shit just got to be too much and they're packing up. So that's all I'm gonna say on it. Um, it's I'm sure that there's going to be lots of commentary on it this week and and it's probably going to have people that are going to do stupid things and say stupid things on Twitter in response to people that did and said stupid things at the conference to begin with. Um, but there's there's broader topics at hand here that I think we all need to address, which is diversity and inclusion. Right. And those are always, I think, the right things to do because we all benefit from a diverse ecosystem and diversity of thought. Um, and I agree with with you, Ken. I think that the ways in which this person uh, tried to make this issue important at the conference was the wrong way to go about doing it, which is unfortunate. Now, again, I I will say this with the, the huge grain of salt, like you might as well just get like a whole pile of it. Uh, I am a white male in America. So the fact that I can say that by itself um, is, is, I don't know, it's just one of those situations that I'm fortunate. But at the same time, I also need to make sure that I think about and look out for those that are less fortunate than me. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing is like, because like, I want to, that's why I brought up what I brought up, because like, I don't want to dis, it's easy to just say, in every context, not just this, in every conversation these days, those people, them, they, and that's not the right approach. The approach is a person or a few people did a thing. 
And it doesn't matter like what their agenda is, like if, if they're part of this or part of that, that person or those persons did a thing and it was a bad thing, you know, and that's like, it, it just doesn't need to fall into like a, a label like, oh, social justice warriors or something like that. It just doesn't. It needs to be like addressed as this person did something that we don't agree with. And and it wasn't, and to be clear, like it's not one person, right, who takes down an entire conference. It's a set of situations and a set of like you called it emotional sort of drama and and, and crap you got to deal with. So um, I'm sure it's exhausting. I'm sure it's exhausting. I mean, even without all the uh, the stuff that's gone on the last few years with DerbyCon specifically, um, I have friends and Seth has friends and I'm sure you Keith have friends who have ran conferences and even without that very public stuff, just from a logistics standpoint, from people who, you know, last minute have to back out as either sponsors or trainers or speakers for one reason or another. Um, that stuff is tough enough, let alone, you know, adding in all the other stuff. So I can totally get it. Seth, was there anything you wanted to add to that before we move on? No, I mean, it, it, like you, you talk about organizing a conference and I've had, I, you know, last couple of years I've helped with, you know, B-Side Salt Lake City and Hack West and like the, like it, it always feels like when you get into these communities where it's, it's almost like a volunteer position or an unpaid position that this sort of like drama that goes on just seems to explode, right? Um, I don't know if it's just because the only way that you're recognized as being, you know, a part of the conference or whatever is it has to do with the, you know, there's like all these weird power dynamics that go on in that situation when you're really trying to just like put on a product or put on something that is helpful. I, I mean, I like what Keith said about as an organizer, you really are just kind of a, you know, a shit umbrella because there's so much stuff that goes on that you, that the attendees don't necessarily see, or there's, you know, instances and activities that happen so I, like, you know, I feel for, you know, again, Dave and the crew and how they're actually dealing with it. Um, and it makes sense to me because it's a huge effort. It's not an easy thing, especially when a conference gets to that size. Uh, it takes, you know, hundreds of hours of effort for that, you know, for the managing committee, like everybody and like and even volunteers just to put that on. And I can guarantee you they're not getting that back out, right? And so it makes it even better that they're not just selling the conference because that would be the easy way to be like, hey, guess what? You know, we built this up. Now we're going to sell it and we're going to walk away into the sunlight or into the, you know, whatever, right? The one thing I will add as well <clears throat> is there was a book that was published back in 2015 by Charles Seif, S-E-I-F-E, -E, uh, called Virtual Unreality. And I really feel like... Um, if you ever, if you're someone that likes to read books and, and you have a bit of free time or a flight that you're going and you don't have any, you know, Wi-Fi connectivity, heaven forbid, um, it is a book that is is well worth reading because one of the things it talks about is the fact that this whole idea of the commons, right, where people can kind of go out and and hawk their wares or uh, make statements about things, like those folks that you say that you see like on the street corner that say that world is ending, like the end is nigh, right? That whole idea of the commons is just totally broken down with the internet at large, especially with social media. And no matter what you believe, uh, you will almost always find a group of people who believe to the same extreme, this, in some cases that you might believe, uh, for any given topic, right? And, and it's almost like a self-reinforcing problem. You see it all, uh, right now with algorithms like YouTube. Um, the recommendation playlist is usually something that's slightly more extreme than the thing that you just listened to to get more click-throughs and get more watching and get more advertisement money. Um, and, and so this is almost uh, both a, 
a, a product of or a situation of the times and a product of the technology that we surround ourselves with. So a um, little food for thought and reading for, for your listeners as well. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we just tweeted out that link um, to that, to that book that, but uh, that's, de- that's definitely an interesting take on how this is all, you know, exploded as a, as it is. Um, I don't know, in, in general, InfoSec drama, and you know, maybe we'll switch to the next topic when we talk about InfoSec <laughs> drama, but it always seems to be, you know, every, what, like six to eight weeks, there's something that pops up and uh, InfoSec Twitter goes crazy and Reddit and everything else on, uh, you know, this topic or the other. So uh, the next one that we wanted to talk about, you know, now that we've kind of covered DerbyCon is Pwnhead the list of the, you know, top, what, 200 most influential researchers in the, in the community, right? Is that, that's what it is, right? I have, I have one correction. It's the top of, or rather the list of the top 200, uh, usually generally white male researchers, uh, who have presented at conferences. That's, that's pretty like, you won't find a person of color or a woman on that list, which is both disgusting and sad all at once. So, by the way, I have a hot take on this, uh, and this is just, just a running theory. I'm sure that they have some sort of login credentials here, but I'm really curious to know, Ken and Seth, which national uh, intelligence operation is running this? Is it Russia? Is it North Korea? Is it the Chinese? Is it Five Eyes? There's got to be somebody that's like some sort of you know national intelligence operation that is just waterhole attacking the crap out of people that are signing up for this thing. I don't. I don't think intelligence had any, had ever crossed the word intelligence had ever crossed my mind when I when I saw this whole thing go down. Fair, <laughs> very fair. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. I, I honestly. So it's the Russians then. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. And actually, for the for the listeners, let's clarify real quick. So this site came out uh, had a. So it has a, and I'm going to post a blog here that says why they assessed the companies, the people, and the conferences, and then also um, uh, how they did that. And they're throughout, I believe, if I have to imagine when they, they throughout the article, they mentioned this, you know, God redacted, I'm, I'm assuming they mean Gardner. Um, uh, basically, they talk about how... Um, uh, their their reason was that you know instead of being like this paid entity uh, that gets paid for ranking and results and you know clearly has back room lobbyist deals going on uh, they wanted to do like a, I guess a more pure version of um, that's what this says anyways I'm not saying that that is what they said uh, like a more pure version of ranking companies they use or sorry companies conferences and uh, speakers. Um, and the real, I think the real issue came down to, from what I'm seeing, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was like the most of the outrage, outrage was over like the people on that list. Like the fact they ranked people, not like companies and conferences, which I felt was kind of interesting. But uh, am I wrong there? Is there, because I haven't seen a whole lot of activity around the people part of that. In fact, they even tweeted out, okay, well, we're going to remove the people ranking uh, later this week. And uh, yeah. let me copy the link there for that. In fact, it, I think it still shows, it doesn't show on the landing page, but I think they still have the people ranking listed. So that that was ultimately the the biggest reason why people were getting upset. It was first of all, again, it had no uh, people of color of any kind and uh, no women of any kind. And there are a number of women in the community that do excellent work, that are incredible speakers, um, that are, are very, very sharp. 
I mean, I think of, uh, for example, she's not necessarily in the security community, but one of your colleagues there at GitHub, uh, Jesse Frizzell, right? Yeah. She does probably some of the most amazing technical work that I've ever seen. And I just don't know how she has enough time in the day to do all this really cool, like just playground stuff that she builds. But um, again, not on the list and probably one of the smartest people out there doing really great work. Uh, there's also, of course, like April Wright, who speaks at all sorts of conferences all over the world or snubs uh, or yes, I think it was snubs uh, on Twitter as well, who, again, one of those people that formerly at Hack5, she might still be at Hack5, but again, has done a number of, of conference talks and has shown up all over the world at a lot of different events and uh, done some really amazing work and not on the list. So yeah, I, I can't even begin to understand how they would rank people because it's like a clout score. How can you determine that one person is better at any one given thing than the other? Security is just way too big for that. So this is what so, they said. They said they use GitHub statistics. So like number of repos and stars, the popularity of their tools, uh, number of CVEs released, conference presentations, because we know that means anything, uh, number of papers. Once again, we know that means anything. Uh, number of books and their popularity, uh, person's impact on the security scene. Um, this is a subjective score given by, okay, so... There's a subjective scoring component, go figure, uh, to this as well. And uh, yeah, like that's kind of their explanation on this uh, page. So, yeah, I, so, wonder if, I mean, it feels, it feels like, I mean, you go back to Russia, maybe it's, you know, the whole Chinese social score, right? That's what they're starting to yep. do is just rank the InfoSec people with the same thing. Um, and then maybe they get us all up in arms. So we're, we're not watching for something else because we're all going to Pwnhead to see what our social score is. You know. Well, the government's already shut down. It's not like they even really need to try very hard. I'm just saying. Sorry, more drama. <laughs> more drama. <laughs> What's the how? How's this? Because Soldier X doesn't Soldier X have a list of? I don't know if they rank researchers or security people. I thought they had a list of people though. Never heard of Soldier X. Do tell. Yeah, yeah. It's some like online cyber. I don't know. I'm just pissed off because I'm not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I for that matter. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us are. So screw you guys. You would have gotten a thumbs up. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I think it's silly. It doesn't really, I thought you like, I'm going to give my opinion. I think it's silly. I don't really care about it to be honest with you all that much. Um, more so it's just kind of, I don't know, just something that was going on this week. But actually um, if I cared at all, it wouldn't, the interesting thing is like everybody's upset about the people piece, but like if I cared at all about this, I think it would be more about um, actually trying to find like an honest way to rank companies. Cause I do think that that's an interesting concept because you do have these like, okay, like what's his face? Uh, Gregory Evans, perfect example. Um, I mean, you do enough Googling, you'll, I mean, well, you don't have to do a lot of Googling. It's on the first page uh, that he's a fraud, but at the time, right? Like this dude owned a company and it wasn't going so well, right? He's clearly uh, not the person you want to hire um, his company, and so I did. But it did bring up, it did bring up like the idea of uh, there. That's an extreme version, but there are certainly like security companies that operate in like a space where they're doing basically commodity, mediocre, um, just nothing. Like you're paying the same price as you would like more of a niche uh, consultancy, but you're getting or even in some cases more, but you're getting like crap results. And so I did think at least the concept of open sourcing, like, I don't know how that would work, but I, I just, the idea seems interesting. 
Yeah, it's one of those things, especially with like the whole idea of the, as, as John Strand likes to say, the pen test puppy mill. He's the founder and CEO of Black Hills Infosec, right? There are a ton of companies out there that are getting into pen test consulting. Um, you see them all over the place. Usually they run a Nessus scan, they give you the report, they charge you 25K and they call it a day. Um, and there's a number of companies here in the Northeast, uh, one of which that I worked for briefly. Um, where the one of the former executives at a local coffee company uh, who was the CISO left, started his own consultancy, and they call themselves a security company, but all they really do is Splunk deployments, um, which, by the way, is not anywhere close to pen testing, which is why I ultimately left that company. Um, yeah, that's not at all pen testing. Right, right, exactly. And so needless to say, it was one of those situations where um, it was, you know, kind of a ground truth moment for me of, yeah, there are a consultancy that claims to do pen testing that doesn't have a single person on staff that knows how to do pen testing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and I mean, the funny thing is like in the consulting space too, like you run into those and it, it's like a lot of those offerings that they have, they don't necessarily have people on staff that do any of that, right? It's kind of like a, oh, we have a couple 1099 contractors or we know this guy that works for you know Google that knows how to pen test and he just does it on the side. Um, there, there's a lot of moonlighting that's going on. Uh, like even, I, I mean, I guess, you know, like the big accounting firms, PwC and others, they do have actual pen testers on staff. I know they do, but it is very much a, you know, kind of a premium service that they provide. And if you want the good ones, you have to pay out the nose for them, right? Which is realistically what you should be doing. But there's, you know, I, I like how you said puppy mill because that is that is what it feels like is they're like, yeah, we do pen testing, but whether or not they actually do, that's what it comes down to. And it would be interesting to, to allow people to actually go to an open source site like this, like Ponehead and give it some sort of rating, right? you know, some sort of review on, Hey, guess what? These guys were really good. We, you know, the output was not just a Nessus scan or like the scan results. They actually gave us some, some valid feedback, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I mean, you have to pay for Gartner results, but so it's not necessarily the Ponite idea. It's not a bad idea. It just seems like they got too fixated on the person list as opposed to the company list. Because if you look at the company list, it's pretty weak, right? There's only, what, seven companies that are listed in there? Yeah. Yeah, it's not It's not a heavily... It's Maybe that's why nobody cared much. Well, for other reasons too, obviously. But yeah, it's not... Uh, hey, by the way, I'm going to go on Yelp right now and uh, downvote your company, Seth. So. Okay, sweet. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> Harsh. Harsh. Well, it, it's funny because uh, I may have to reopen this for like for some reason for some charity or something. But um, speaking of like rankings and all this other good stuff, I created a uh, a shirt at one point and stickers associated with it. I'll put it in the chat here. Um, for it's called the Money Quadrant, uh, which tells you exactly where you know things things stand in terms of of how they actually come to these these results. So. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, I don't know if it's going to let you see the logos or not, but oh, you're really right about there only being seven companies ranked, which is just like a shame because there's, and how are they ranked now? I'm not going to call them out on air, but uh, actually I will because uh, I like the people over at, uh, I know a couple people. I like a couple people that are at Atreides and I see that they got a good yeah. score. So that makes me happy. And NCC. Well, isn't that I HD more? Trusted. Yeah. HD's over at, a trade us now with Sean and Nate. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, they do a lot of good Sean work there. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So. Yeah, but it's interesting, right? Spectre Ops. I, like, there's just if you look at the conference list, right? It's pretty huge, and yet there's only seven companies represented here. Um, right. Well, so here's the other thing that I'll say about the conference list, right? Especially for listeners that are getting into the infosec industry, the conference closest to you is the best conference you can go to because it's got people around you that are also going to that conference and you probably will get some pretty great speakers. I mean, I, I spoke at Hackfest Canada, I think it was, gosh, two years ago, something like that. Maybe it was last fall. I can't even remember anymore, but um, I think it was last fall. Anyhow, uh, incredible speakers. And it's not terribly far from me in, in Quebec City, uh, Canada. And I was like, yeah, this is a great conference for me to attend to because, hey, there's a bunch of people in this area that now I can get a chance to know and, and ask questions and they live generally locally to me. Um, so if you're getting into this space, the local conference is the one you should probably, I don't know, go volunteer at because by the way, there's a whole lot of shit that goes down that you generally have to deal with and the organizers will love you for it. Yep. Good recommendation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we've, we're always telling people that to get involved locally is the best way to get into the community, right? We've seen that with a lot of, a whole lot of developers and security people that that's, that's their start. You know, they go volunteer at the local B sides or at, the local DEFCON group, and all of a sudden they're they're tied in with everybody that's actually knowing what's going on locally. So it's a good recommendation. Well, I think we've uh, we're we've hit enough time here. Uh, Seth, do you want to go right into like uh, asking Keith questions and getting to know a little bit more about Keith? Uh oh, sure, sure. <laughs> let's let, let's do that. Um, I mean, we did have the whole SCP topic. You know, there there was a vulnerability in SCP. Uh, go check it out. We'll post the link on it. Uh, it was pretty interesting because it was old. But let's let's talk to Keith because we have burned you know half hour talking about you know, Pwnhead and and DerbyCon. So. Sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm, again, I, I'll pray on verbose mode. It's just it's a natural state of being. <laughs> oh, no, that's a good place to be for a podcast. Now people can read the link. And by the way, if anybody has another uh, sort of like uh, interesting opinion maybe some info we don't, we aren't privy to, but you might be, um, feel free, like regarding the previous topics, feel free to email us at absoluteappsec at gmail.com. That's absoluteappsec at gmail.com. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on what, what, what it is, we'll, we'll decide if we like, you know, want to discuss it further next week. So, um, uh, but Keith, uh, for you, um, uh, -oh. so you gave a talk at, at, Sorry, at AppSec, AppSec, why can't I say AppSec? I work in AppSec, I can't say it. At AppSec Day, Melbourne, Australia, called We Broke the Build, uh, How Security Failed the DevOps Movement. So uh, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your talk, what prompted you to give that talk. Um, yeah, just anything you can expand upon from it. Sure, I'm sure. So right now too, as well. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it is now out on YouTube. I saw they posted that yesterday and I was uh, both excited and terrified uh, as Seth and I were talking earlier. It's it's one of those things where it's like you go back and you watch how you did because whenever you give a talk um, at any conference, really big or small, and especially in this case where the room was just so jam packed with people, it's kind of like um, I equate it to like my wedding day, right? It's like you forget everything that happened and like you hit the end of the night and you're just like, whoa, like that was an experience. Um, but when I originally built that talk, uh, I will admit that I intended to really bash on the, as I like to say, the bastardization of the term DevSecOps, uh, because I'm a, an avid fan. In fact, 
I will share on air. I love the DevOps handbook. As you can see, like I've got tabs in this thing, like for oh, days. Um, wow. and, and like, I've got notes on it too. And, and so in part six, it says like, it's a whole section on how you implement security as part of the DevOps process. And in my mind, DevOps and security just go hand in hand. It's just a better way to do development that fits security right into the process. And so I was starting to get really, um, I don't know, stuck up about, I don't even know the right way to put this other than I was getting really grinding my gears on the fact that DevSecOps was becoming a thing. Now, the irony is, is that's also my title. I'm a manager of DevSecOps at Thermo Fisher. And so for me, it's like, okay, now that I was, originally I put forward the talk and then they said, hey, would you actually mind giving your talk as a keynote? And I said, uh, yeah, uh, but now I kind of have to, like when you give a keynote, you can't really go out there and bash on something, right? Um, so I, I turned it around and I actually, uh, again, I called it, we broke the build, um, how we failed the DevOps movement, but then also how we fix it. Like that's the, the subtitle in parentheses on there, because I think that for just about anyone these days in security, it's a situation where we have a real opportunity to reshape the way that the business does development, enable our developers and our operations personnel to, um, you know, push code a little bit faster into production and make it secure all at the same time. And so the the whole kind of onus of the talk started with, you know, where did we come from? Like, how did we get to this whole idea of DevSecOps and what does this really mean? And I attribute that back to Shannon Leitz, uh, who works at Intuit as the, I think she's director of DevSecOps. Um, forgive me if my title's wrong for her, that may have been updated since then. But she came up with the DevSecOps manifesto. And on it, the very first thing is about communication, right? It's about talking with your peers, which is something that as security professionals, we don't do a very good job of, right? Like we like to talk amongst ourselves. We like to talk about the drama on Twitter, um, but we very rarely cross the fence to working with the developers hand in hand, really trying to get an understanding of the problems that they face and, and actually making their lives easier, which is ultimately where I go with the talk is, uh, you know, how the the vendors at RSA and at Black Hat and, and other places have really like clung to this idea of DevSecOps to be like, yeah, more budget from the CIO's office. And I'm like, that's that's not what any of this is about. Um, and, and so I, I kind of end on that. And, and you know, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but I end on the note that really to to win together to like really win as a company, you have to work together. And part of that involves, you know, extending a hand, reaching out and, and getting to know the struggles of other teams and then finding ways that you can make your processes either fit into their workflows or help change their processes in such a way that make their workflows better, actually make their, their workflows go from, you know, waterfall or water scrum fall to actual DevOps and secure at the same time. So that's, that's kind of where I, I went with it. I, I hope your listeners, you know, get a chance to go check it out on YouTube and enjoy it. Thankfully, the the camera view on it, it shows the slides really well. But because it's from so far away, I look like, I don't know, less than an inch tall and it's dark. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, I don't have to worry about how I look at all. I just you get to hear my voice and you get to see my slides. And that's like the best way to be recorded. So I was actually really happy about that. <laughs> nice. You know, I, like you bring up some good points there, right? And and you did. Like we didn't have a, a full on discussion while we were in Melbourne. I think I, 
I'm pretty sure my talk was right after yours. So I didn't like, I wasn't paying much attention. I'll be honest. Sorry about that. Right. No, but, no foul there, dude. Like whenever you're giving a talk and you're up next, you're never thinking about what's being said right in front of you. It's always about what's no, up next. Yeah. So, uh, but you bring up some really good points. Right? It, it, what, one of the problems that I always have, like, especially when I got into security was how we treat the rest of the business. Right. It, you know, we, we're always saying you want to become, you don't want to become the agent of no for your organization, right? You don't want to be the gatekeeper. That's not your, that's not your purpose. Um, and so like when it, when it comes down to like actually classifying it as DevSecOps as opposed to a portion of DevOps, it really puts this weird divide in your DevOps process, right? Uh, like if, if that's being run by somebody that's not on your development team, it's not true DevOps. It, it's not, right? Because they're not the ones that are in there actually interacting with it. Yes, you can provide the tools as a security team and you can monitor the output, but if you're really enabling development to secure their code and actually use DevOps in the style they should be, there should not be a separate team that, that manages that. So At I least my a, opinion. I have kind of a theory for what the future of security will ultimately look like. Um, and I think that we're we're slowly going to get there either by force or simply by um, being enticed to go in that direction by the rest of the business, which is that at the end of the day, development as a process, even running things in operations for that matter, like actually having things out in production will be similar to a hospital, right? You've got surgeons, you've got nurses, you've got administrative staff, you've got um, people that specialize in, you know, neurosurgery versus heart surgery, people that specialize in, I don't know, different areas of the musculature, for example, or heck, even orthopedics, for example. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think that what will happen in this space over the next number of years, I'm not going to give it a, a defined timeline, but people will start to insecurity especially will start to become developers or developers will start to become security practitioners and eventually it really will just be i don't know i don't even know just dev just ops just devops i don't i don't even know anymore right because if you eventually have developers that understand well enough to make sure that their stuff in production doesn't break and that they can sustain it long enough where it doesn't need their attention anymore they've achieved kind of like a unified state they're it's secure it's in production and it's not going online and they're writing features in code and it's just working even know what to call that anymore is that just dev yeah yeah it really is right you know it's it, you know security becomes a feature it's just a part of the code I, I, like we had uh, we had this argument with uh well i had this discussion with jim manico right about the this utopian framework that's going to come out and it's going to be you know built on java spring and everything's going to be secure by default xss will no longer be an issue right hi jim i, you know, <laughs> I would like to i would like to live in that utopia <laughs> yeah no but that was the discussion is that's where it's going eventually is the frameworks everything that we're providing as security professionals now eventually like we we code ourselves out of a job you know or we you know tool ourselves out of a job um at, at least in the aspects of what our jobs look like right now, you know, yep. it, you know, I, I don't think compliance, I don't think it's, it's going away. There's always going to have to be somebody that thinks about security in an organization, but it may not be in the DevSecOps. It may not be security tooling. It's just going to be development tooling that actually checks for security. Um, like I always, I always dig that. Like I always, I, my, my whole comment about how pen testers are really just glorified QA testers. Um, <laughs> yep. That, like 
that, that's really where QA should or pen testing should fit is it should be part of the QA team because that's what you're doing is you're just testing the the application for another function that may or may not exist. Um, it, it's uh, it's a malicious related. unit test, right? It's it's yeah, not, it's the it unit is. test that's the negative test of whatever your positive happy workflow should be. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, like I, I think our jobs will change, right? Or you know, by the time we're out of the industry, it'll look completely different than it does right now, and we won't care because you know, Ken will be on a beach in Florida, you know, burning up in the sun. Apparently, is a joke I won't be in Florida. Uh, no thanks. Hawaii. I don't. I'm not a not a big fan of meth and crocodiles or anybody from <laughs> Florida. But, you know. yeah, say- hey, hey, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> no. Hurricanes, meth, and uh, crocodiles or alligators. I don't. I never, never can remember which, but whatever. Gators, right? Yeah, gators. Yeah, gators. It's gators for sure. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm a much bigger fan of Hawaii now that I've spent a week there. Um, no gators, like sharks, maybe like, but rare, very rare comparative. <laughs> Just so. volcanoes, depending on which island you're on. Uh, yeah, I mean, the forces of nature are going to be so. There's an int- totally going off the rails here for a moment, but no matter where you live, there's always something, right? Here in the Northeast, it's blizzards, right? Or, or like really humid, like really hot summer days that for some reason it's like 60% humidity and 98 degrees outside. I don't know how it happens, but it does. And then the winter it's blizzards and you can see them coming, but we have no poisonous animals of any kind anywhere. And for the most part, like bears and wolves, they're afraid of you. Um, you live in like the Southeast on the other hand, you live uh, out in parts of California, the world is on fire. And you have like poisonous snakes around you and potentially earthquakes, right? You live in the Northwest and you're depressed because it's raining all the time. You, you live in the Midwest and there's nothing there. Like it's just snow and fields. Uh, and then of course, you know, we've already covered the tornadoes as well. You, you have tornadoes, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. You, which again, you can't see them coming. Like that's why personally for me living in the Northeast, it's like, okay, I can see a blizzard coming usually at least a few days in advance. And otherwise I have no threats of poisonous animals and no earthquakes. I'm pretty good with that because air conditioning works great in the summer, but that's just me. (laughs) That's okay. Ken and I were talking about snow earlier because I, so I'm in Salt Lake City, right? And yep. like we just average, you know, so much snow. And it, it, it's always entertaining to me how all you Easterners lose your mind over like three inches of snow. I mean, granted, you do get bigger storms than that. But most of the time, it's like three inches of snow and everything shuts down. And I'm like, yeah, that was that's like every Tuesday here, right? You know, yeah, that's cute. The <laughs> when it says but it's we're prepared snow, for it, right? We go and we empty out every carton of milk, every bag of toilet paper. Every, uh, what's the other thing we run out of? It's usually milk, toilet paper, and... Peanut butter and bread. Guaranteed. Yes. Bread. <laughs> bread is the other big one. Bread, milk, and toilet paper. You cannot find it if there's like an inch of snow incoming. Um, well, so the funny thing is, is so I live... I'm not going to get into sports here, but I live in New England. And uh, and so for me, it's like the same thing. You know, there was a, sum- there was a summer. Huh? There was a winter a, a few years ago where we got... Um, six to eight inches of snow probably once a week for like the entire month of February. And the snow banks were up to um, like the second, almost the third story windows of like the apartment building that we lived in. And it's like, yeah, that you just live with it here in new England. But my, my colleagues down in like the mid Atlantic region. Yeah. They get two or three inches and they're done. That's it. Like no school, like banks are closed, everything, the whole nine. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I think it's all, you know, preparation. I mean, we could tie it back to AppSec if we wanted, but it's our podcast, so whatever. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say. As, as far as, like, how prepared someone is to, to deal with an emergency, right? Hey, uh, I've, got, I've got rations in my basement. You, 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 you have bread and toilet paper and milk, right? That's <laughs> I've got bread, oh, no. toilet paper, one. milk, ammo, and uh, rations in the basement, so... We're, we're good. So, well, you're so good. it's all you're about good. your threat model, right? It's all about your threat model. So taking this back to AppSec, I'm going to loop this right back in, right? It's all about your input sources and what they should be versus what they are, right? If it's a phone number, you should not be accepting alpha characters in there. And you should probably not be accepting it more than, I don't know, like 18 characters in length, right? Like that's your predictable snowstorm in the wintertime. We'll just call it a day, right? On the other hand, if, you're, if your Apache Struts 2 instance is hooked up to your website in any way possible, that's like you're living in Southern California and you're just, it's dry. You're going to have a fire and it's going to be a bad time for everybody. So See how you, you know, did that? That was, that was an amazing sort of <laughs> connection there that you drew. Master of analogy. Uh, I will tell you, I can come up with one for almost any situation. <laughs> sweet good um all right so to pull it back right so keith i don't know we've been all over the place so uh, give us a little bit of your origin story right i think we've we, we kind of did it in the introduction but um this is what we always like to ask people how did they get into application security kind of what was the path that they took you know where did it start for you i know you've mentioned you know training at DerbyCon, but obviously it happened before then so you know if you don't mind just Give us a, a background of you know what drew you to security and how you got into the field. So uh, I'll be dating myself a little bit, um, but I was 11 when uh, back in 1996 when Blizzard Entertainment, it might've been 97, so I might've been 12. But anyhow, um, when Blizzard Entertainment released Battle.net for Diablo and uh, as an enterprising juvenile delinquent in the middle of nowhere here in New England, uh, I learned on my 288 dial-up connection that I could use Diablo trial accounts to connect to battle.net with a username and no password. And as long as that username was not logged in, I could effectively just log in as that username and, and lock somebody out. So at you know the young age of juvenile delinquent uh, that I was, I took Visual Basic, which is something I was learning from a book, and I wrote a bot front end that would connect as many connections uh, uh, that my 288 dial up and my 533 megahertz PC could connect to battle.net um, and, and do all sorts of, you know, nefarious things like message people from all of the bots, which other people that were on the same dial up uh, because they would have like the screen filling so fast would just kick them offline. Um, so that's kind of that's how I got started in both programming and a little bit about security. Because I was like, I really shouldn't be able to do this, but I can, so I will. Um, and, and all the way through uh, kind of the early 2000s and, and then even into college, I did a lot of uh, just automation work on playing video games. So I was one of those people that everybody hated that uh, that I, I built bots for, wow, World of Warcraft. Uh, that's how I made all my gold and my money. And I, I sold characters and I sold like, you know, gold to Chinese farmers to resell to other people. Um, and at some point I realized like, it would be really cool to do this as a career, but at the same time, I was not good at this. I couldn't do like this human interaction piece. It's like, throw me in the closet, feed me pizza and Mountain Dew, and I will make you some really epic stuff. Um, but I couldn't have like really great conversations with people. So I got a degree in psychology of all things, right? 
just to to shore up kind of my shortcomings and my my personal habits and my ability to speak in front of other people or speak with other people. Um, and as a result of that, uh, in 2009 is when I graduated college. As some of you may remember, that was the bottom of the stock market here in the US. I mean, literally like the housing yeah. market crashed. It was the very bottom point when I graduated. And nobody was hiring a technologist uh, with a psychology degree. Like GitHub really wasn't very much a thing that people thought or cared about. Um, you know, writing open source code wasn't really a huge deal to a lot of people at the time. Uh, especially again, where I lived was not an ideal place. If I had been in like Seattle, if I had been in, I don't know, um, parts of Texas like Austin or California, San Francisco, I probably would have been just fine. I would have found a technology job and, and just kind of moved on. But being far enough away from uh, kind of the metropolitan areas here in the Northeast, uh, it didn't bode well for me. So I, I just kind of stuck with it. I, I tried to stay informed as much as I could um, by buying books and listening to podcasts and uh, and just trying to stay involved in some way with the industry. Um, I, I worked at a financial institution for a little while. And then ultimately, I, when my wife got her master's degree and graduated and, and got a really great job with an engineering consulting firm, um, I went back to school for probably close to two years full time in computer science, which is what I probably should have done to begin with. Uh, while I was there, I was the president of the cybersecurity club. I founded the Linux club. Uh, I started doing a lot more open source code development. And about two years in, it was a, a summer that I was taking some classes. One of these uh, pen test puppy mill companies uh, that was associated with the university through alumni uh, approached me with a job offer to become a pen tester for the firm. And I was like, heck yeah, like uh, I don't have to pay any more student loan bills. Like I've already got a bachelor's degree anyway, so I should probably just be doing this professionally. And I just dropped out. So I'm, I'm officially a college dropout, uh, even though it was my second time around um, and, and tried to do that. So when I got started with them, they, they trained me up as a Splunk certified architect, uh, which I was like, okay, I don't see how that has anything to do with pen testing, but sure, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a certificate and I'll learn about Splunk, which is huge everywhere. And then they're like, yeah, we need you to, to you know, do this for like the next couple of years before we can really have you pen testing. And uh, by the way, we need you to travel for like three weeks of every month, uh, like, you know, henceforth. And that's going to include like Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's. And like, I was like, yeah, this, this kind of sucks. Um, thankfully, at the time, I still had a LinkedIn account and, uh, and the folks at Rapid7 reached out and, and recruited me for a customer success engineering role. Um, but while I was there, and, and this actually gets a little bit to something else that you guys had in the notes, uh, I reached out to Jimmy Vo because he had spoken on the, um, gosh, it was EIS, the Exploring Information Security podcast with Timothy D. Block. And he was talking about mentorship and how back in 2009, 2010, uh, there was the InfoSec Mentors Project run by Marissa Fagan and Wim Reams, mostly run out of like a Google spreadsheet. And that died out about 2012 because, well, working out of a Google spreadsheet doesn't scale. So I approached Jimmy and I said, could we build a, a website that could allow people to provide and at the same time seek out mentorship in the security community without needing a lot of human interaction? Uh, he said, I can't really code, but I like the idea. Uh, and Jimmy gave me a lot of feedback and guidance on how it really should operate. And ultimately in, uh, I think it was, I don't know, right around the 1st of 2016, maybe it might've been 20, yeah, it was 2016. Um, 
we ultimately released uh, in uh, like an early alpha, the InfoSec Mentors project, or it's on infosecmentors.net. It's also out on my GitHub. It's open source. Uh, so I'm uh, github.com slash and my hacks. Um, and, and so we launched that in like an early beta. And then it was in March of that year, I showed up on uh, Paul Security Weekly, which is how I met Paul Asadorian, uh, the co-host of Application Security Weekly with me. It's his network, but I'm the main host, which is kind of fun. Uh, and, and so I launched it live in March of that year. And I think last I checked, we had something like 500 registrants, uh, three pe 300 or close to 400 people actually like completed the full registration and are signed up. And something like 33% of those that have registered have uh, connected with a mentor of some kind in the industry. So that's at infosecmentors.net. Um, yeah, from there, uh, I continued working on coding, built a training called Offensive Web Hacking with Casey Dunham, my mentor at the time. Uh, gave that at DerbyCon, met Paul in person for the first or maybe the second time there, uh, who said we should do this thing called Application Security Weekly. I was like, that's awesome. I've been a fanboy of Paul for years. And, uh, and then in like December of that year, he was like, okay, cool. We're ready to go. We've got sponsors lined up. Let's do this. And I was like, what? Like we're actually doing this application security weekly thing. Uh, so yeah, we've been doing that now for gosh, we're going on year two at this point. We're episode 46. I think we just recorded this week. We, we count by zero. So it's the 47th episode. Uh, so zero is the first number, uh, you know, <laughs> traditional know. AppSec array, yeah. array counting. Yep. Um, and with that, I think the DerbyCon training, because I was building it at the, at the time, it led to me getting the job at BugCrowd that I got, which led to me being mentored by Jason Haddix, my sensei in AppSec, like really true, deep seated AppSec pen testing. Um, and then from my, my work with him and the podcast, I was very fortunate to meet Brian Inagaki, uh, uh who I now see as both a good friend and a mentor at Thermo Fisher. And in April of this year, right around April, um, he reached out to me saying, hey, we need someone to build our AppSec program. Uh, and I want you to apply for it. And this was this is my first management role ever. And it's a little weird because I'm so used to being like hands down on the code doing things. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was both very humbling to get a chance to be an actual manager for other people in the space. And at the same time, it was a, a kind of a big leap for me to start to put ideas and concepts that I've been talking about on the podcast into reality. So I, I applied for the job. I, I got the job and I was originally just the manager of application security reporting to, to Brian. And then uh, that was June of, of last year. In August of last year, uh, they said, hey, we're going to actually give you more responsibility. Uh, you're going to be reporting to the product security director now. So you need a new title. And I got to choose it. And I was like, well... If I'm covering everything from the firmware all the way up through layer seven, like the web apps, why not like development security operations? Because ultimately that's what I'm trying to instill in the company is make security a service to the rest of the organization seamlessly. Like they shouldn't even know that we need to exist because it just, they get all their security vulnerabilities, they fix them. And at the end of the day, it's cool. I'm running all the strategy, but I'm not doing any of the work. Um, Admittedly, it doesn't go as fast as you'd generally like. We still do some of the work. But uh, to that end, it, it's been a journey for me going from um, being a punk kid on the internet in the 90s to 
now running uh, a security program focusing on application security and in this case also you know medical device product security uh, for a Fortune 150 company. Like I, if you had told me this you know 10 or 15 years ago, I would never would have believed you that I would be here today. So I'm very fortunate. Yeah, and it sounds like you said earlier, DerbyCon had its part to play in that as well. So. Yeah, if I was not at DerbyCon, I would not have met Paul, and none of this would have happened. <laughs> well, it's 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 fortunate that it did, and uh, that you're you are where you're at now. That's uh, very fortunate. Um, so, as far as product security goes, um, are you? Would you say you're? So, are you building security, it, helping get security built into the products, or is it? Um, I mean, can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms yeah. of that responsibility? So it's it's a little bit of um, it's a little bit of that, and it's a little bit of making sure that they're basically it's kind of like being a parent. You're you're telling development teams to make good decisions, and you're trying to give them an example of what good decisions are. Right now, I'm not a parent myself, um, so I can only imagine. Like I've only got two cats, and they're way easier than than securing things for the most part. Um, but the way that I look at the situation is is you have to bring it back to them in, in ways that they might not have ever thought of. So. A lot of the products that that are made in any manufacturing space related to uh, laboratory science or even health sciences of any kind are, I don't know, 10, 20 years old, maybe more, depending. And some of them are still being sold today. And a lot of the software that was written for those devices uh, was not written with security in mind. Now, with that being said, uh, the way that I like to kind of quantify security of medical devices in general is at the time they were being developed, at least initially, the architecture wasn't including any sort of technical debt because it, for the most part, was secure. The internet today uh, did not exist in the same way that some of these devices were, you know, the, the environment that they were originally being put into. Networks today did not exist in the way that they uh, existed back then. And so I like to coin or I like to use the term. I don't know that I coined it, but it's almost like technical inflation, right? The cost of doing business uh, for these devices caught up to them very quickly because suddenly everybody wants to connect everything to everything. And these devices were never intended to live in a world like that. But for the expense that the hospitals and the forensics labs and the pharmaceutical laboratories have paid for some of these things, um, they will use them far after their end of life. And, and so for me, it's it's a little bit of, okay, I see that you've put, uh, I don't know, maybe a database credential in here and it doesn't appear to be hashed or encrypted in any way. Uh, or uh, I don't know, maybe they're doing some sort of, um, you know, running the database as the administrator uh, or as the root user, as opposed to a lower privileged user after it's been provisioned and set up, uh, making sure that, okay, if this thing is remotely accessible, that they're actually turning off the root user and setting up a, a user with proper permissions, right? There are any number of things that go into devices today that again, just didn't go into devices years ago. Web apps, for example, mobile mobile access to a device and being able to pull back the data or even being able to um, to, to use the device for its purpose uh, from somewhere else in the hospital or in the lab uh, is a very real thing. So air-gapped laboratories, while they still exist, are becoming more rare. And so now you have to think about the threat model in an entirely different way and then prepare those development teams for addressing the threat model that they've never had to face. It's kind of like like putting a, a, a domestic animal in the wild. Like 
it's it's just not meant to happen. And well, yet that that's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I'm sitting here thinking thinking about you know how we make such a big deal. Well, on, on, publicly you see a big deal made out made out of like issues with IoT and like you know uh, like smart home devices and and things like that, uh, which is like a totally different risk than medical devices. <laughs> Huge, hugely different. Same same yeah. principle, right? But vastly different out, uh, consequences. And not to mention yeah. too, the, uh, just one thing, Seth, is is the amount of money that goes into developing some of these things is really different too. The IoT is usually to the bottom most price point where for the medical device space, they're trying to still be competitive in the price point, but the investments that go into a lot of them are, are sometimes in the millions of dollars, right? Um, and the FDA, not to mention, requires that we do a lot around the security of these these devices as well. So you're you're both regulated in ways that IoT isn't, uh, and at the same time, it's it's not built to the lowest dollar value possible for sales purposes. Yeah, it's you know actually you bring up a good point because I was thinking of like, a, and I think it was Scott, maybe it was Scott Helm who like basically there was this I can't remember what it was, but it was a device I guess you couldn't. It was like a home Wi-Fi firewall or, or something, something like that. It was like, you can't, you know, super secure black box type deal. And he like uh, picked it apart in um, no time and then wrote a huge set of blog uh, posts on just like, basically what I'm saying is what he uncovered there was that somebody basically put some shitty stuff that was like not configured well, uh, cheap components and all that inside of like a, basically a literal black box. And then, just said, oh, this is super secure. And clearly you couldn't do that with medical devices. It's an interesting point that you make. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask was the FDA oversight and, you know, how that affects your job. Most of the, most of the people in the industry that we deal with aren't necessarily on the health side of things, right? There's, there's some people that work for insurance companies, but I, I feel like that's a completely different space than building devices that actually go into people or monitor health and have to, you know, so so how often are you regulated by them? I know you have to get FDA approval for devices. Um, like what does that necessarily look like as opposed to PCI or something else? Sure, sure. So um, one thing is I will give a shout out to my good friend and, and someone I, not dramatically, I vastly respect in this industry is Josh Corman and Bo Woods. Uh, so the founders of the I Am The Cavalry movement um, who have put out a ton of documentation on this. But the FDA provides uh, two sets of guidance, and I believe they're in the process of updating this guidance uh, today. It, they've recently been asking for um, kind of a, like a request for proposal or a request for comments on it. Um, but they have the FDA pre-market guidance and the FDA post-market guidance. So there is a process for getting devices approved to be used uh, in the United States called the 510K submission process. And part of that today uh, is a very uh, stringent security rigor as part of that submission. So of course it includes all of the sort of things like design architecture. And uh, one of the things that they're um, now talking about including is the uh, software bill of materials, right? So what are all of the open source projects that you're using? What is all of the proprietary software that maybe you've purchased from another company that you're including in this? Why is WordPress installed on this device? Um, not that I, not that I've ever seen that, but I'm just saying like that's that could be something we see in the future for some reason, right? Um, but it's it's one of those situations where 
they they expect you to do things like um, static code analysis to make sure that you are actually looking for vulnerabilities in the binaries as they're being built. They expect you to do things like a, an actual penetration test of some kind to make sure that you're applying uh, human analysis against the security of the device. And at the same time, to, to some degree, they are uh, willing to work with you on the threat model. For example, if you've got some sort of, um, I don't know, maybe it's a, a device that uses x-rays or a device that uses some sort of like um, radio uh, signaling or technology that can, you know, produce bodily harm if, if you're in the beams. And so it's a device that maybe is intended to be in a really enclosed laboratory environment. That kind of changes the threat model for a lot of different things related to that device. And so some of the vulnerabilities that you may find, for example, I don't know, maybe you don't have an encrypted tunnel when you connect to that web application. That might be okay, because guess what? That device is intended to be in a laboratory environment where there's an attached PC with it that you know lives in the next room through a lead-lined wall. Um, and, and that's how you interface with the device. And that's okay. Uh, so it's it really is a, a different world in a lot of ways from kind of the things that I had grown up doing and, and the things that I uh, thought I might do in the industry. Um, but at the same time, it, it has the government mandate to make sure that we're doing it, which means that uh, to a, you know, a larger degree, we are given the opportunity to, to go do that from a headcount and a budgetary perspective. I mean, the, the security team here at Thermo Fisher is growing really, really fast and we're almost always hiring. Um, and so it's one of those situations where we've got the mandate to secure the business, but we've also, especially in the product security side of things, we've got the mandate to make sure the devices we are shipping to our customers either are not the cause of a breach at the customer or are not the cause of uh, you know some sort of downtime that relates to a person's health. Downtime that relates to a person's health. <laughs> yeah, that, so that like was the that most like IT <laughs> description of making someone sick that I've ever heard. Yeah, you don't anyway, want someone sorry. to die when they're connected <laughs> yeah, to a device that was, uh, that yeah. you've built. One hundred percent uptime for your health. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. You're you're perpetually eating good and going to the gym. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you get like a ninety-seven percent SLA on that. I think it's yeah. pretty much. <laughs> Got to be 100%. Yep. And honestly, it's it's one of those things. I mean, I laugh because I had to go and get, um, I think it was like a, a MRI, CAT scan. I can't recall what it was for my knee um, shortly before we went on the trip to Australia, to Melbourne. Uh, and I remember going to sign in uh, for like just kind of their normal patient sign-in system. And I hit the backspace key like in their touchpad screen thing too many times and then went to re-enter my name uh, or like I went to re-enter something and hit the enter button. And I got like a buffer underflow that crashed the system that dropped me into Windows XP that by the way is connected on the network because it prints out somewhere else. And I'm just like, yeah, I now work at Thermo Fisher. I just walked into this thing to just get an MRI or a CAT scan for my knee. And I've just effectively now I've got Windows XP sitting in front of me on a network connected device in a hospital. It's it's scary. I, I got to tell you, it's like, OK, you are you are immediately dropping your devices in a hostile environment the moment you sell that thing. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, definitely. Yeah, you think about the number of people like that are left in a, you know, in an exam room with a with a PC and. Uh, 
I mean, you just don't know what those people are going to do, right? They, they, they do a fairly good job of training the employees to lock the machines and like, you know, they're making it easier for doctors and nurses to get into it. But, but even then the number of times that I've been like, you know, sitting there with a wide open, just like XP image that's floating there. And I'm like, Oh, the amount of damage that someone could do on this network would be amazing. Um, yeah. Well, not to so, mention, like, you're you're in a room. There's no cameras, and you've got a, a USB access and a keyboard and a mouse. Like, <laughs> you don't even you don't even need to have the system like allow you to unlock it. You've you've got all the access you need right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social engineers, uh, playground, right? You know, effectively. Ugh. Effectively. No, I mean it's really interesting though to think about it from your or from the from the aspect of you know healthcare devices like what you're doing as opposed to you know github and you know ken's microsoft world right that you know the, ha, ha, ha. you know i but, i will say so as as much as we like to make fun of microsoft um especially for windows xp uh i will say satya nadal uh and all of the stuff that they are doing with vs code I, I gotta say the acquisition of github and the recent announcement of having you know free private repositories um I, I think I mean <laughs> Microsoft is a very different company uh, today than they were even probably five to ten years ago, and it's kind of exciting and scary all at once because uh, it's like, what do you mean they built a custom Linux kernel for the Azure Sphere IoT device that follows like the seven principles of highly secure devices? And I'm like, who are you, and what have you done with Microsoft? <laughs> See Seth. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, that's just we'll, my two we'll take it. No, no, the check is in the mail, right, Ken? Right. The check is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> I mean, wait, wait, this is not a sponsored podcast. Damn it, guys! Yes, but I can sponsor people to say nice things about the company I work for. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's funny because uh for for the podcast that i run uh the first two guests of this year was ken the first guest uh for 2019 followed by another one of my friends ray bango who is a security advocate at microsoft so it's kind of like we're unofficially sponsored by microsoft by way of people that come on as guests <laughs> it's not at yeah, all a conspiracy works. forget about it people not right, right. <laughs> Don't, I don't mind know if you guys had other questions. The, the, the Microsoft tattoo on his, the Windows tattoo that he's got on his, hell yeah, on right. his wrist there. That's not a barcode. No. I don't know if you guys had other questions, but I'm having a lot of fun. So this is this has been great so far. <laughs> uh, I'm glad. I'm no, glad. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been good to have you on, man. Um, yeah, I was just gonna you know say we you know we are about. Uh, we've gone over an hour for sure, right? Um, but uh, Ken, did you have some other questions that you wanted to bring up? Sorry. Uh, no, just um, pretty much like you said, it's that time that we start closing it out. So, you know, one one thing we always ask people is where can they see you next in person if they wanted to chat with you and maybe pick your brain in person or, you know, just uh, expand their social, their social network. Um, so conferences you're attending? or speaking at or anything like that? So this year I'm I'm doing my best to actually limit my conference attendance because I'm working on a super secret project that I plan to launch in 2019. Um, I admittedly have been doing more on like the planning than the actual writing of code so far. So Wait, are you saying that people that go to conferences sometimes aren't actually doing stuff? 
Mm. Mm, well, I mean, if you're unless you're preparing something for the conference, which is almost always like you're preparing your slides, you're preparing a training, right? Like, and by the way, having given a training, like hats off to you guys because seriously, like giving a training is not easy. Um, also, I was totally something. purposefully trying to make you put words in your mouth that were uncomfortable. So <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> trying to mess um, with you. <laughs> but uh, but I am I am working on a, a project uh, in the AppSec space that I plan to launch probably in 2020. Um, but maybe sooner. I don't I don't know right now. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to limit my conference attendance. I believe I will be out at, you know, quote unquote, hacker summer camp out in Vegas uh, coming nice. later this year. Um, other than that, I know that there's some talk with uh, James Wicket and myself where we're discussing maybe giving a, a co-presented talk at uh, a conference sometime in early summer. Uh, I don't know where and I don't know exactly what the date will be or what the topic will be for that matter. We were still kind of hashing that out, but I'm a fanboy of James Wicket. I got to tell you. And so I, I really, really, really like James and I, I cannot believe it. Uh, I keep, I keep meaning to ask him to come on the podcast and I, I keep forgetting, but um, you should, so, he's an incredibly, he's an incredibly nice and smart, smart guy. Um, so I've had the pleasure of, of having him on the, the podcast for my side of things uh, as both a guest and a co-host on a couple of occasions. So you absolutely need to do it. He's a great, great person to have on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, I will reach out. Steph, just don't let me forget. Yeah, of course, I'm saying that to the, uh, to, to you who are, who will also probably forget. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, other no, than that, I mean, I'm decently active on Twitter. People can always reach me. I have open DMs. I'm at and my hacks. That's H A C K S. Uh, yes, it is a bad Lord of the Rings joke. If you see my pinned tweet, you will probably get it. Um, so that that's pretty much the best way to reach me. Uh, of course, Application Security Weekly. It's every week. It's a we've got I think a YouTube channel, and I think uh, obviously you can catch it on your podcatcher as well. Um, of course, you should go listen to the first episode of this year with Ken because it was really fun. Seth, we'll have to have you on at some point as well to round out the absolute absec, uh, uh, absec, absec, excuse me. We're not like building muscles here. Um, <laughs> the the collection, as it were. So yeah. Sure, sure. Anytime, man. Uh, you know, just let me know if you if you want to yeah. chat. I like it. I have no problem. We can even, you know, make sure that we're. You know, we keep it non-explicit, right? That's <laughs> no, dude. No, we we swear enough on that show with with Paul on there. It's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of what I figured. So we have um, some episodes where we can get away with not putting the explicit on there, uh, but this kind of goes back and forth. It depends on who we have on, right? But, also, right. like I always notice, the more tired I am, the less of a filter. I don't know if it's the same for you, Seth, but like or you, Keith. But the the more tired I am, the less of a like the less of a filter I had just comes out. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it depends on what that day's been like and how much other crap I've had to deal with. Right. Yeah. For me, it's if I've had whiskey or if I have had cider, um, whiskey, probably a little bit more, uh, loquacious. Maybe we'll just call it that. <laughs> That's a classy as fuck word right there. I like that. There we, there we go. go. <laughs> well, yeah. The, I mean, the, the initial idea was for the podcast, between me and Ken was going to be app second whiskey and it was just going to hey. be shots, you know, for an hour. And, you know, it would have, you know, would, would have gotten progressively worse for sure. So, um, nice. yeah, but Keith, you know, it's been great having you on, man. Um, really interesting to talk through what you're doing, what your origin story is and your hot takes on everything. Thank you. I appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for spending your time.
your time. You gave us a decent chunk of your time and we, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. No, you're very welcome. And, and honestly, um, this has been a lot of fun. If you ever want me to come back and opine about, you know, uh, hot, hot topics, as it were, by all means, I am, I am more than happy to jump in and, and give you my thoughts on things. So Sweet. awesome. Cool. cool. Um, outside of that, I think we've got uh, next week, Ken and I will be at AppSec California. Uh, we're giving our training. So there's still a couple slots available if anyone is interested and is going to be down there. Um, that's the you know, Excellent Adventures, or no, Seth and Ken's Excellent Adventures in Secure Code Review. And um, otherwise, I don't, I don't think there's anything else, Ken. Is there anything else we, should, we need to bring up? No, I look forward to seeing all of our friends and meet new people next week in Santa Monica. Because uh, you can see out right now, I've got like an or an inch, a foot of snow uh, in my driveway. Inch of snow, yeah, a foot of snow, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, whatever, whatever. It's uh, it's enough snow to be uncomfortable. So I am looking forward to uh, to the uh, hopefully warmer weather. I don't know. They've been going through a cold spell, but it's to be better than here. So. Yep. Cool. Nothing more to add. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for joining again, Keith, you know, special thanks to you and I'll be posting this, watch the Twitters for links to everything. Um, it'll be up on all the podcatchers here, you know, shortly, probably later this evening, depending on what's going on. So, thanks again. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye guys.